Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. Okay, welcome to Radio Aspiral. Um, this is the first program. Uh, things are a little bit different uh, to start off because I'm going to introduce you to the radio program myself. What's going on? We have a great guest today. Uh, coming up, we will be talking about uh, Malaysia Airlines MH370. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you don't like long intro music, you're probably not going to like this. Let's go.
Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. Okay, here we are. Welcome to the first broadcast of uh, Radio Aspiral. Uh, I suppose we can call this, uh, well, I suppose you'd call it the first episode, but it's something of a pilot. It won't quite follow the normal channels that we will in future broadcasts, uh, and that's because I wanted to introduce you to what Radio Espoil is. So before our interview today with our guest... Uh, I'm just going to uh, talk about Radio Spoil. I'm going to talk a little bit about myself because you're obviously asking who the hell am I and what's Radio Spoil. Uh, Radio Spoil is a global uh, internet broadcast. Uh, we feature um, audio and uh, video, although whether I'll continue with that, I don't know. It's been a tricky business to get all this together, with, including the graphics, but we'll see how it goes. What's what are we about? Well, our focus is on uh, media, uh, how it deals with news. Uh, our core areas will focus on uh, publishing um, areas like aviation, one of our subjects today. Uh, we'll also focus on technology, and you know we're going to feature a whole host of other subjects as well. Pretty much depending on you know what's interesting what's going on in in the media world and, and what's the focus yeah we'll we'll even consider politics but for today's program we won't go there although uh, our broadcasting interviewer does go there uh, a little bit but then we'll see i think you know what i mean uh who the hell am i well i'm mick rooney uh, I'll be a broadcaster, uh, and I'll be the interviewer on these uh, these podcasts. Uh, I'm a freelance investigative journalist and publishing consultant. Uh, I've worked in the fields of retail, logistics, uh, journalism, publishing, and also the translation industry. I've written and published... Uh, oh. A dozen books now at this stage uh, I've written hundreds of articles although some of them uh, both uh, uh, feature articles and news articles I don't always get a byline because I also do uh, research for other journalists and I don't always get a, a byline in that and that's fine as a as a we understand that as a research journalist so there's a lot of words you probably read by me that you don't know that I'm behind that. Uh, I've been in those areas for more than 30 years. Um, I suppose, you know, again, what, what's, you know, who am I and what's Radio Spoil all about? I felt it, uh, obliged never to be contracted fully to any media organisations I, I work for. Uh, because I've always felt that brings in a bias, it brings, brings in a, an editorial line that I'm not always comfortable with. Because being fixed to a media organisation, well, it's not how I roll. You, all of you, 
you're my friends and you're my guests but more importantly you're also going to be the people I interview and that's really what Radio Spoil is about because so many of the people that I'm going to talk to in the coming episodes are people that I've known personally uh, through and through and I have an insight on the topics and interests they're interested in and also their specialised areas no one appears on Radio Spoil unless I, I've known them personally this is about getting people valuable airtime on a on their suitable subject of choice and most importantly here um we don't do ad breaks uh we don't do you know uh sponsorship although at times i'm happy to mention uh someone's website uh a guest website or or what a guest does professionally i, I think that's fine but I don't do promotions uh, for anybody. Um, things on Radio Spoiler will be free flow. Anytime I do an interview, I don't do an interview and go, oh, you know, this is only going to be half an hour, it's going to be an hour. It's free flow. If it takes us an hour, or even two hours, or even three hours to get through a subject, whatever has been discussed. We go there, and we do that, and that's the way we work. Any of my guests, and whether they come on, and whether you agree with what they say, what they don't say, whether you agree with their viewpoints, or where they're coming from, my approach has always been, and I've learned this, in my career in journalism you don't invite a guest on set them up expose them abuse them and ridicule their point of view if you're going to invite a guest on you welcome that guest and you make that guest feel welcome whether you agree as an interviewer uh, with that guest or not you, you never do that and I see that too many times in the media where a guest is invited on or one or one or two guests are invited on and they're they're pitched one against the other you know one side the other side and it's all just to get you know viewer figures and, and I don't do that and none of my guests ever brought on will ever be put in that situation um, as I say from the start and this is how I intend to go on but it might not always be the case uh, we'll see how it goes um, all our episodes will have uh, audio and video um, if I can continue to do that or it gets difficult I may switch back to just audio but we'll see how it goes um, as I say, I'm not interested in uh, promotion or sponsored broadcast at this time. So, you know, straight away, you know, if you look at the links um, when I publish uh, broadcasts, if you're interested in getting, you know, or being involved in sponsorship at this stage, 
you know I'm not interested in it so don't contact me if you, if you you know want to sell your products or pieces of technology or services or whatever uh, I'm not into that you know it, it's not my job to sell either uh, a guest's services or the products that they come on and talk about it, it that's not my job to sell them you know that's theirs uh, I will of course anytime um, someone comes on you know I'll always link to their uh, their personal website or, or what they're about or what they're doing and I only do that just so if after a program you want to know more about the guest I've had on I think it's only fair that there's somewhere that you I have linked it that you can go and understand a little bit more about the uh, the guest I suppose Radio SPL, in all of the topics that we'll discuss, and there's many broad topics we'll discuss, we'll probably have some we return to, but ultimately we're going to be human focused. Uh, I'll try to be relaxed and personal with a guest, and I'm obviously going to try to focus on engaging stories and without all the nonsense and the fluff and sensationalism that we sometimes get uh, in the media. Our byline, as you've heard in the audio, is that we explore and discover together. Uh, not as adversaries, uh, one person against the other, uh, fighting different positions and viewpoints just on some of our up-and-coming uh, programs uh, we're going to touch on um, some topics uh, that will focus on crime and but but specifically how the media reports on crime and that might include um, it might include uh, horrendous crimes. Uh, it might include crimes committed by political people. It might include crimes uh, committed by celebrities. Uh, we're going to also focus on entrepreneurship and publishing, which is something close to my own sort of background. Uh, we'll also go a little bit more outfield and, and look at subjects that, that you know, uh, people, I, I, I think that, that are closer to but don't always admit. And that, that's things like, you know, religion, spiritualism, healing. We, we'll touch on those subjects. Um, we're, we're also going to touch on um, music and band promotion it's an area that I've come from um, I am originally from Dublin Ireland um, I'm a big music fan uh, I've been involved in the entertainment and music area uh, I want to talk to people that are involved in that area on how music has evolved and how promotion of music and how bands look to get access to whether it's live gigs get access to uh, 
publishing their music, uh, broadcasting their music, I, I want to look into those areas. Um, I'm going to look at uh, a subject that I think is also becoming quite popular with people, and that's um, genealogy, um, looking at your ancestral roots. I know that's fascinating for many people, looking into their family history. Um, I'll have people on uh, to talk about that. And yeah, we'll get on to the, of course, the politics and the whole more recent uh, Trump train um, issues. Um, and I'm sure we'll have lots more subjects. I'm not going to mention names of guests uh, that I have in the coming episodes. Uh, one, because I don't quite know availability of, of, of guests uh, coming up uh, so I don't want to say this is coming up next that's coming up next and that's coming up next um, obviously people uh, I want to emphasize guests that come on to this program no matter who they are and how high a profile they have no guest is paid on this program they, they give of their time and their expertise and their knowledge and their insight on a subject um, so listen let's see let's see how things go okay let's let's focus now on today's program okay today's episode as I've said earlier is going to feature on uh, Malaysia Airlines flight uh, 370 now I know there are people coming to this subject who maybe don't know an awful lot about it um, so let me give a little bit of insight before I talk about our guest uh, today I, I think I'll be quite interested with our with our guest um, both um, controversial uh, and both in, an insightful uh, guest okay so for everybody when people hear that word you know those words Malaysia Airlines flight 370 they'll think oh that plane that went missing you know have they found it yet I don't, I don't know okay so just some background on it and uh, Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH uh, 370 was a scheduled international passenger flight that disappeared on the 8th of March 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport, Malaysia to Beijing Capital International Airport in China. Uh, the aircraft was a Boeing 777-200ER. Uh, uh, the ER is, uh, signifies extended range. Uh, it was operated by Malaysia Airlines. Uh, it made its last uh, ATC air traffic control contact over the South China Sea shortly before entering Vietnam airspace in fact it, it never ultimately uh, as we understand entered Vietnam airspace and approximately 40 minutes after uh, takeoff it disappeared from radar Malaysia military radar continued to track the aircraft as it deviated westwards from its planned flight to Beijing and crossed back over the Malay Peninsula. It left the range of Malaysia military radar at approximately 2.22am northwest of Penang, 
which is on the kind of west coast of uh, the Malay Peninsula. The aircraft was carrying <coughs> 12 Malaysia crew members and 227 passengers from 15 nations. There was a multinational search effort for the aircraft uh, in 2014. It was the largest and remains the most expensive in aviation history, the search. Uh, as I say, the search began in the South China Sea. It later developed to the Gulf of Thailand uh, and ultimately to the Southern Indian Ocean. We are now more than three years on and its final resting place that is of the aircraft and where it went down what happened it has still never been located and this has prompted as we can imagine many theories about its disappearance what happened it and those theories have varied from the possible plausible to the absolute bizarre Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 is the second deadliest incident involving a Boeing 777 and it's the second deadliest incident in Malaysian Airlines history. The Malaysian government received significant criticism especially from China although I would add from many other countries for failing to disclose information promptly during the early weeks of the search. MH370's disappearance brought to the public attention the limits of aircraft tracking, including several issues raised four years earlier following the loss of Air France Flight 447, which was a flight travelling from, uh, I believe, uh, uh, from Brazil to France. In response to Flight 370's disappearance, uh, ICAO, the, the, the International Civil uh, Aviation Organization, adopted new standards for aircraft positioning, uh, and that is reporting specifically over open ocean and extended recording time, uh, and also facilitated extended recording time for cockpit voice recorders or uh, CVRs. Uh, look, I'm not going to say any more. During the interview, my guest will go into more detail and explain a little bit more about what I, 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 I've touched on there. Um, I, I have no doubt during um, following episodes of uh, Radio Spoiler, we inevitably will return to this uh, subject. I, I, I also have a future guest uh, who's um, an airline pilot of, of uh, Airbus um, 380s and has written a book on this subject. Indeed, my following guest has also written a book on this subject. And actually, as a sort of consistent note, you will find that a lot of my guests have either written online 
or have written books about the particular subject that, that they're, they're interested in. Uh, okay, so who's my subject today? Jeff Wise is a journalist specialising in aviation, adventure and psychology. He was an executive producer of the Showtime documentary Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McVie. He served as an on-camera aviation analyst on TV networks like uh, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, CNN. He's also appeared in documentaries on PBS, the History Channel and the National Geographic Channel. His articles have appeared in Business Week, uh, New York, the New York Times, Nautilus, Popular Mechanics, Psychology Today, and many other um, mediums. Uh, he is the author of the books Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. He is also the author of the shorter published e-books The Plane That Wasn't There, Why We Haven't Found, MH370, and Fatal Descent. Andrew Lubitz and the crash of German wings 9525. Jeff Wise is a lifelong science enthusiast. He majored in evolutionary biology at Harvard University. He's lived in Hong Kong for five years. He's written extensively about adventure travel in Southeast Asia, Russia and the Middle East. He did eventually return to the United States and he continues to write for the New York Magazine and Popular Mechanics. He's written about aircraft investigations including as we previously mentioned uh, Air France 447 and of course Malaysia Airlines 370 our subject of our topic today. He does have a personal website jeffwise.net and Needless to say, anybody with the remotest interest in this area will possibly be familiar with it. It's become one of uh, the most popular online forums uh, for the discussion about uh, the investigation of MH370 and other aviation accidents. Uh, It has had uh, over 25,000 contributions from independent uh, researchers around the world. Jeff lives in New York City with his wife. He has uh, two sons. Uh, Jeff, in his spare time, is uh, a private pilot uh, and he flies uh, small aircraft and gliders. So, let's get to the interview.
Radio Aspire. We explore and discover together. Jeff, uh, thanks for uh, joining us on uh, Radio Spoil. Uh, okay. You're actually you'll be delighted to know you're our first guest. Uh, yeah, that's great! What a great in honor a, in, in, a, in, a, in a new season. Um, just for a bit of background, uh, the pair of us have known each other for uh, uh, quite a period of time. Needless to say, uh, the subject of our program, um, Malaysia Airlines uh, Flight 370, has been pretty much one of those things that's united us and and. Indeed, uh, I suppose for both of us has united many people uh, across the world as, as a, a, an incredible uh, subject of discussion. Uh, as in the precursor to the program, you know, I've, I've explained about Malaysia Airlines flight, so we're, we're pretty much going to get straight into uh, our, our discussion uh, today. Right. I suppose what I want to do, just for because obviously some people maybe are coming to this, have long forgotten what happened. Uh, often when people know I've been interested as, as a sort of an aviation buff in this subject, people will say, oh, oh, they still haven't found that plane yet, you know. So I suppose we need to bear in mind that our, there's probably people listening today that, that, you know, won't be quite as much up to speed as, as perhaps we do. And I suppose as, as people into aviation and follow aviation stories, you know, I think sometimes we forget that, um, you know, we're very much on top of the latest information that's coming out, and, but not everybody is. Yeah. Um, I just want to reflect back on those that, that infamous weekend, March the 8th, uh, for, for uh, I think in the, in the US, for you, it would have been the late hours of, of that Friday evening. Um, right. And, and for us uh, in, in Europe and, of course, Malaysia, the early hours of, um, of Saturday morning. I just want to reflect, first of all, how do where were you? How did you get to hear about this? You know, it's it's like that question everybody asks. Where were you when? It's funny. I don't remember where I was when I first heard that the crash had taken place. Uh, I do recall getting the call from Slate magazine to write about it. I was sitting in my car. Uh, I think it was a Monday morning, and I'd heard about the crash. And it was funny because I just finished a massive article uh, about something else. I think it was a different air crash. It might have been Air France 447. I was absolutely exhausted mm -hmm. and tired of thinking about plane crashes. And my first re reaction was, oh, no, another one. Uh, 
and back in the saddle. And uh, I didn't think much of it, actually, at the, t- at the time. It didn't seem particularly, you know, as, as you may recall, the first that we heard about it was that a plane had disappeared. Uh, and, and everyone at that time, it just presumed to have crashed. Uh, and so the searchers began looking, you know, near the point of last contact. And, um, you know, obviously at that time we had no expectation that it was going to be anything unusual. And I remember later in that week thinking, wow, can you believe it's already been three days and we still don't know where the plane is? Yeah. Of course, that later became replaced by, can you believe it's been three weeks and we haven't found the plane? Yeah. And, and so on and so on. And, and here we are three years later and w- w- effectively uh, no aircraft as such, or certainly no uh, 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 final resting place. Uh, of the aircraft, um, or indeed any any sense of what happened at all? Uh, exactly, and, and, and for the families, that, that that's the fundamental. Where are my loved ones? Uh, when are they coming home? Uh, right. In in whatever respect, and and, and what happened? Um, I suppose, I mean, my own thoughts on the the, the actual investigation from that week of of March uh, twenty fourteen. Um, it was so confused. Uh, there was many mixed messages coming out from the press conferences. Um, I remember a, a colleague I have in the BBC got the call, um, uh, and she was uh, doing something with her, her family, and was basically told, "No, you're booked on a flight. You're going to Malaysia. Malaysia for what?" Yeah. She wasn't even aware of this aircraft gone missing. Uh, so. She actually, she knew I was into aviation and she contacted me and she says, I've never done anything like this before, what do I ask? And I'd been listening to the first few press conferences. I said, well, you know, there's, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, ask them, what the hell technically could possibly take out every piece of communication on an aircraft? And I think the second thing, um, I said to her to ask them was nobody is asking and look let's face it we know in the even the local media and the international media converges on a, on a place during these press conferences um, you know they're not always equipped with the right questions it's like what did the you know pilot have for breakfast you know right. what, what color was the plane you know it's it's right. those kind of questions and I said to her, the one other thing I really w- want to know, and I can't find out at the moment, because at that stage there was so little information, is what kind of communications subscription has that airline mm. got for that aircraft? C- can you just explain that, you know, for our, for our viewers and listeners, what that means? Because this is something very fundamental around this whole case, communication. Right. So... There, there was so much early uh, misunderstanding. And remember, there were reports. Well, let me back up a little bit and say that with many air crash investigations, many air crash stories, uh, the, most of what you hear is wrong. And yeah. so, and in particular, with reference to what you're talking about, there were all kinds of early reports that the engine had been communicating yeah. with the manufacturer and so forth, and it was very unclear. And so one of the really challenging things about this story was, was breaking down sort of the 
assumptions that that many of the journalists and, and most of the readers had about what what does how does a plane normally uh, communicate yeah. uh, and 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 so forth and uh, and 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 what is normal and of course as you're uh, referencing every airline has slightly different protocols might uh, subscribe to a different package um, from Inmarsat and uh, from the communications provider and. Um, and, and so a lot of this had to be had to be uh, you know explained before you could even really start to get your head grapple around this, with, yeah. the, with the topic. And unfortunately, it's the nature of journalism these days mm-hmm. that there is very little built-in expertise. Uh, expertise is devalued. You know, you can you can Google anything uh, these days. Now, whether the answer that you get will be correct or whether the, the information can uh, be uh, built into some kind of uh, framework of understanding that will allow you to inform the reader in, in a useful way is an entirely different matter. And the, the, the mystery of MH370 is so complex that, frankly, I would go out on a limb and say no actual working <laughs> journalist covering this story understand the basics. There have been numerous books that have been written about what happened to MH370 by authors who don't know what the SDU is. I, 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 and now why does it matter what the SDU is? Because the SDU is a, is a piece of equipment upon which the entire mystery hangs. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't know, that now I'm being a little coy, I suppose, in framing it this way. The SDU is the satellite data unit, which is a somewhat arcane piece of electronics that sits towards the back of the airplane and, and, and carries out the actual uh, transmission of the electronic signals through the antenna to the satellite. And the, everything we know about the final six hours of this flight, the majority of the flight, uh, is uh, made up of seven plus or minus mm-hmm. data points that were transmitted through this box. And this box behaved in a very unusual way. So uh, this is just a case in point that, as you're saying, uh, these these particularities of technical details of the of the aircraft uh, aircraft's disappearance are very important and very difficult to grapple with uh, by the mainstream media. Right, and, and I, I think even now today, when and we've got so many people out there who've written, you know, books, uh, papers, theories about you know what happened and. So often now, I find more than half of them are built on very basic, fundamental things which are completely wrong. You know, uh, yes, absolutely. A, 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 a perfect example from the early days. I, I had to keep telling people and journalists saying, "Look, you know that report you wrote. You know, you said the transponder was turned off. We don't know whether it was turned off or not. You know, it could have been." It may not have mm-hmm. been, you know, simple little things like that, you know, that and and hence everything built one brick upon, you know, false brick underneath. Um, can can we just let's let, let's just look at the initial search. Sure. We, ha- we have some players in it. If you okay. want to explain the, the players in it, we have Malaysia, China sure. and Australia. And just 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 very briefly for people, people will say. Why the hell are the Chinese involved? Why why right. aren't the Australians the lead team? Why aren't they, you know? It, there's a certain set way through ICAO rules that that investigations work. Right. So not everybody in the world has an equal stake in an accident investigation, exactly. which is pretty obvious. 
Now, it, it, uh, let's start with Malaysia. It was a Malaysia Airlines. It's, the plane took off from Malaysia. Most of the tickets were sold in Malaysia. So Malaysia has an obvious stake. In fact, it's the, the country uh, which has the authority to conduct the, the overall investigation. So Malaysia, the buck stops there at mm-hmm. Malaysia. Uh, who else? Well, there's a lot of Chinese nationals on board. The, uh, the plane was bound for Beijing, so there's an obvious uh, Chinese interest there. Uh, now, the plane ultimately, it was determined by Malaysia that the plane wound up in waters for which Australia bears search and rescue responsibilities. The Southern Indian Ocean, yeah. The Southern Indian Ocean, and so therefore, uh, responsibility for conducting the search and trying to figure out that end of things was delegated to Australia. Um, and now also the plane was built by an American company, Boeing. Uh, so, and also the United States has a lot of areas of response, a lot of areas of expertise that, that are, uh, can be brought to bear. So they were, the NTSB here in the United States was, was involved. Um, uh, later down the line, uh, a piece of debris wound up uh, washing up in Reunion Island, which is uh, administered by France. So then the French got involved. And, that, and, that's, off uh, the, and had, that's off the east coast of Africa for people who are not quite familiar with that, that, that area of their geography. And, and when we talk a little bit later about debris, we'll be quite focused on that area. But just on the search itself, just as a recap for people, essentially sure. in that first weekend, of March uh, 2014, as as with all aircraft uh, disappearances, um, the searchers go out on sea, on air, uh, and they search usually, well, where was the, like, when we lose anything, well, where did you see it last? Where did you have it last? Yeah, so that's where they go to look. So we initially were in the South China Sea. Right. Some days later, I think it was by the Monday we'd shifted to the across the opposite west side of the uh, Malay Peninsula, and we were into the Gulf of Thailand and up the Andaman Straits, uh, right. up towards uh, uh, I think it's Sumatra uh, that's up in that direction, um, and then lo and behold, something interesting happened. <laughs> um, along came this company in Britain who had been crunching some numbers over that weekend. Um, I actually think that the CEO of the company is is Mark Dickinson. And Mark Dickinson and his staff were working through these numbers, this data that that we'll talk about. Uh, Because we're going to talk about two sets of data here. We have radar data, which we'll talk about shortly, but let's just focus for the moment because it influences why we ended up down in the South Indian Ocean. So this company was a British company, and it's called Inmarsat. Now, Inmarsat, I, I believe through SATA, um, effectively, when I talked earlier about packages and subscriptions and communication, you know, this is where Inmarsat come in. So just explain right. a little bit about, we won't get too much into the BTOs and BFOs, but just sure. explain a little bit about that data, because this company essentially went to the Malaysian government although I've heard it right. took them quite a bit to convince the Malaysian government uh, that, hey, hello, you know, you need to take us seriously what we're saying here. So talk a little right. bit about Imersat's role. 
Sure. So Inmarsat is a communications company. It's originally, as the name implies, for marine purposes, communicating ships to shore uh, through a geosynchronous satellite, which was located over the Indian Ocean at the equator. Um, now, as you were saying earlier, the plane disappeared, okay, 40 minutes into the flight. And it went black, disappeared from radar screens, nothing. Um, I call it the triple disappearing airplane because it disappeared three times. The first time it did this, this, this the initial disappearance from, from air traffic control screens. Then uh, shortly after that, lo and behold, the Malaysian uh, Defense Department steps forward and says, by the way, we know that you've been looking for this plane in the, in the South China Sea. We actually detected it on our primary radar screens probably not in real time, but maybe looking at tapes later, we detected it turning around and flying over the uh, Malay Peninsula and then vanishing again over the Andaman Sea, which is why the search uh, was moved to the Andaman Sea. Although, weirdly, they kept looking in the South China Sea. It was, it was really, everything was very confused in the early days. So then it disappeared again. It disappeared off the primary radar screens. And then, uh, about a week after the disappearance, this is when Inmarsat steps up and says, by the way, we know that you thought that it went completely electronically dark 40 minutes into the flight. In fact, it reappeared uh, after the disappearance, and we received we now we we, we received what we call metadata. Now we we, did, we didn't receive we could have, but we didn't receive information from the planes electronics, uh, just telling us, hey. I'm here. Mm -hmm. uh, this is because this equipment, if it's not used, is assigned every hour to check in, not to transmit any location information or anything, but just to say, hi, I'm here. And from these signals, we were able to detect, first of all, that the plane flew for another six hours. And secondly, we've been able to crunch this data in such a way that we can tell not where the plane was, but how far from the satellite it was. And from this, we've been able to draw a series of arcs on the surface, uh, and at each time it transmitted, about once every hour, it transmitted these signals, and it grew progressively more distant from the satellite. And so, with a little bit of inference, you can deduce that the plane either flew to the south or to the north, and we don't know which. Mm -hmm. But it either went into the remote southern Indian Ocean, or it went flew north into Central Asia. And this was a shocker, believe me. I mean, nothing like this had ever occurred. The idea that this, I mean, that Inmarsat says that they themselves did not know that their data could be used in this way. They had no expectation that the plane, which everyone presumed to have crashed somewhere in, near Malaysia, uh, had in fact flown for another eight hours. It blew everyone's mind, and it turned what was a you know, m m sort of moderately, normally uh, interesting plane crash into a, the absolutely bonkers thing that that, that it, it has that we now know and love MA three seventy as. And and I think it's it's important. We, we, you can't you you've always got to caution and emphasize when we talk about this in Marsat data. This data, which as I said, was they never even thought this would ever be used in this way. It, it's never been used in this manner. So this is everything about this data is essentially a forced in the in the manner in which it's being applied what do you mean forced 
I mean, we. Oh, never, first. Uh, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a first. Yes, a first, it was a yeah. first. Yeah. It was a, it, right, exactly, which itself was interpreted to be significant, because uh, Inmar Sat said, essentially, we're basically geniuses. We, I mean, we figured this thing out that nobody could have imagined uh, until we figured it out, and so therefore. We have utmost faith in the integrity of this data because no devious, mischievous miscreants could have figured out the potential for the data to be used in this way and therefore misled us by spoofing it. Originally, at the very, very, their very first question, some of them have said, is that they kind of scratched their heads and said, can we believe this data? Do we know that this data wasn't somehow tampered with? But they quickly put aside their... Uh, concerns and went all in on the idea that this this data must, uh, because it is so new and, uh, and unusual, nobody could have been creative enough uh, to fool us. There's obviously another piece of uh, tracking on an aircraft, and I mentioned it earlier, the, the transponder um, through uh, secondary radar that monitors all aircraft in the world, you know, that the, whatever at any, I think they say at any time, there's up to 3,000 aircraft flying uh, across the world. So just talk to us in general about the radar uh, on an aircraft and the, the, the use of that transponder. Right. So um, tr for, for many years now, um, aircraft have been tracked by air traffic control. Um, using uh, a system of transponders where the, the okay, so let's maybe back away to World War II where you're trying to detect, you know, the, the, Britain wants to detect German bombers coming in, German fighter planes coming in to bomb them. They developed this system, and the Germans are, are working on it independently too, and the Americans. Everyone wants to work on this thing called radar, which uses beams of electromagnetic radiation to bounce something. It bounces passively off an object like a plane, and then it bounces back and it's detected. Much as you would shine a flashlight on something, you see it and the light bounces back to your eyes. Now that's that's all well and good, but you don't you don't know what it, you're seeing. You see a blip. You don't know what it is. So then uh, later the system was developed um, called secondary radar surveillance, uh, which involves once uh, a piece of equipment on the plane called a transponder so that when it detects the incoming signal, it actively sends out a signal that tells you what it is uh, and what altitude it's flying. And so now the radar uh, operators, air traffic control, can see who is where. And that really reduces their workload and the level of uncertainty a lot. And that allows complicated airspace use so that planes can be flying in from various places mm -hmm. and the air traffic control can give them instructions and they can all do the right thing. Great. Um, so that's very handy, but it requires that the plane actively be par participating in this. There's now more broad, modern systems like ADSB, which I, I won't get into unless we have to. No. Um, but the point being that once the plane's electronics went dark, and so this plane was no longer actively transmitting, it vanished from radar screens, or at least it was it, it vanished from the the normal air traffic control radar screens. The secondary radar, the, yeah. The person looking at the screen, secondary radar, was no longer being seen. It could be detected, but it, be, it was a lot harder to detect. And I would add, sort of parenthetically that the secondary radar system only works to a certain distance. And the distance at which this plane vanished was, was sort of ballpark 
around that range. And so it's not that unusual that this plane vanished from, uh, from air traffic radar control. The other complicating thing was that it happened in between two areas of air traffic control responsibility. So that it had, it said, it said goodbye to Malaysian air traffic before in the, it had three minutes to say hello to Vietnamese air traffic, which was the next sector it was flying into. In that time, nobody was paying any attention to it. It was nobody's responsibility. So from the very first few days, I had just spent a lot of time looking at Air France 447, which similarly was a case where a plane vanished while in between areas of air traffic control responsibility. I'd been thinking a lot about this, and it was, and it seemed pretty obvious to me that, or at least it seemed a very plausible hypothesis that uh, that this was active, that this was a deliberate act because it it happened to take place right in that little niche of time mm-hmm. where if you were going to do a runner. That's where you would do it. So it was either just an incredible coincidence or the, the, a sign that somebody pretty savvy was, was behind it. So essentially what we then had was following that weekend, we got the, the sudden announcement that, you know, hey, we think the, we th- we're not sure, but we think the aircraft turned back, turned back towards Malaysian airspace. And right. we think we might have spotted it on military radar and for a long long time um that was sort of played out for several weeks in the media but we we never quite got the well well how or can can you just show us a screenshot of a a radar can you show and to this day we've never quite got that information it's just look look just believe us you know it it. but we've also combined that a little bit with the inmarsat data and kind of and you know, other things have, have, have sort of arisen where we can sort of match up certain details to say, okay, well, maybe it did. Um, and, and the reason why I tie that in is because I want to mention sure. the, um, the, the, obviously, in not all, but in, in many serious aircraft uh, investigations, there's two primary things going on. There is essentially the technical uh, aspect of the investigation, but also sometimes there can be opened a, a criminal aspect. Um, you know, is, is there something, was there something nefarious going on here? And, and of course, with so many questions regarding um, uh, Malaysia 370, um, that's what happened. Right. We eventually, after uh, I think it was two years, uh, we, we, Essentially, we had this report leaked to us, the uh, Malaysia police report. Um, right. Just we, we won't go through all of it. I mean, essentially, um, this was a report, and I want to stress this report has never officially been released. This essentially was was leaked to members of the media. It was leaked to me. And it hasn't been completely released either. No, I mean, no, it been and, no there's parts missing that are we, intriguing. Yeah, we, 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 we believe there are a minimum of eight folders. Possibly there are more. Um, uh, but but what, what is out there publicly now is, is somewhere in the region of about 1,200 pages. So, you know, this is by no means a, a, a minimum report. This is quite an extensive report. Just and, and with the radar that we, we, we talked about, the military radar, um, just, just give me, give me your, your basic takeouts of what was in that report. Well, the main question of, so the Malaysian police 
were tasked with trying to ascertain who might have been criminally motivated, criminally capable of stealing the airplane. Mm -hmm. And um, very quickly it was put out that nobody on the, none of the passengers or, or uh, flight crew could have or could have done it or done it except for possibly the the captain Zahari mm-hmm. Ahmad Shah now so the question essentially became did Zahari Shah steal his own airplane and uh, the upshot of this secret Malaysian police report is that there was no evidence no motivation no suicide no no known terrorist links um, nothing about his behavior or anything, you know, gambling debts, none of the things that you sometimes see in, in the very few cases like this that have, that have taken place. Uh, nothing that would seem to indicate him, with one exception, which was the fact that this guy was a keen flight simulator enthusiast. He had built an elaborate rig in his basement. And in searching through the files uh, on this guy's uh, hard drive, of his flight simulator, the police found um, data points. These were save points where the flight had been saved. And intriguingly, amongst these data points, uh, and not long before the plane disappeared, it seems that he had been flying the plane, or flying the simulator, I should say, in the remote southern Indian Ocean uh, without any fuel. Uh, and so this looked to many people a lot like what actually happened to the plane where it had flown south over the southern Indian Ocean until it had no fuel and it crashed. So a lot of people took this as the smoking gun that the plane mm. must have been, in fact, hijacked by Zahari. Yeah. And to be fair, and, it's, and, it's, it's, it's probably worth saying, um, I know many pilots, uh, owning a flight simulator or a pilot owning a flight simulator is, is not unusual pilots tend to be sometimes a little bit obsessive and passionate about their career and aviation so it's that it wouldn't essentially be unusual i've also always pointed out that um one of the things with a particularly a sophisticated a good high-end flight simulator software is that you can do things in it that you wouldn't normally do in an aircraft you know, you right. can set yourself tasks. Uh, you can try and land it on the Empire State Building. You can, right. you know, you can do, you know. So, you, I think it's important to stress that that you know you you can do things in a flight simulator that you and a flight simulator, as good as the software is, is never essentially a replicate of what a full flight simulator in Boeing would be, or Airbus would be, or what a, a real aircraft will actually do. It's not quite, you know, at that level. Right. And no, yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you if you're interested in saying, well, what would it be like to try to do a Sullenberger, for instance? What if I had a plane? Uh, what if I was at 30,000 feet and I suddenly had no engine power? What would mm-hmm. I, what would, would happen? And so I think we, some, some of us, um, uh, took it upon themselves to ex- investigate. Okay, what exactly was the plane doing? We had some of the some of the data that was you know leaked in this report, like the plane was flying at a certain indicated airspeed, certain altitude, um, 
it, it, it was a little complicated to figure out what exactly this plane was doing. It seemed like it was maybe practicing stalls or something. Um, it does not seem like, uh, thanks to the Inmarsat data, the, the Australian investigators have come to the conclusion that the plane was in a very steep terminal dive at the mm -hmm. end. It was basically going nose down at a high rate of speed uh, into, the, into the ocean. Uh, that's not what this shows. Um, now, whether the person saved uh, this, you know, the save point Got of the simulator point. and then pushed the nose down, maybe yeah. so. Uh, why did why did somebody say? Anyway, there's many, many questions to be raised and investigated. Um, unfortunately, there's only a handful of people who are actively investigating questions like this. So, so, so stuff comes to the surface. Most journalists just report that it's come to the surface and kind of leave it at that. And questions like, okay, what does this data actually mean is left for a very small handful of independent researchers. And, and of which, of which we just raise more questions ultimately, what does it mean that, that the, that the Malaysian police found this, this data on the flight simulator? Does it mean that he's, you know, had, had some suicidal intention for, for at least, you know, several weeks in advance? Or is it a coincidence? I mean, m many aspects of this case, we have to ask ourselves, is this significant? Is this a telltale clue? Or is it a coincidence? Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier that the plane disappeared in a very small window of opportunity in between two air traffic control zones. Was that significant or was it a coincidence? We don't really know. You can tell different stories that, that make sense either way. One of the other aspects uh, that came out uh, of this uh police report was that, uh, as I said, they, they did the assessment or, or sent out for assessment uh, to their uh, cyber people um, to, to examine the, the, the computers and the, the flight simulator. But there was something, an, another aspect of checks that they were doing, and, and this is what you, you would imagine in, in all serious events where there, 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 there's a, an investigation, a criminal investigation. And of course, it's, it's what's come to the surface in the last 20 years. It's the aspect of cell phones and their importance. Right. So so the, the Malaysian police carried out their own checks on, they went to all the cell phone providers and said, what can you tell us? Is there anything? And we know of all the checks that they did, we know of one very significant piece of detail that came out there and, and it concerned the first officer's uh, phone. Just right. tell us about that. Right. So they found that the cell, the first officer's cell phone had attempted to connect to a, a tower near Penang, uh, in uh, an island off the coast of Peninsular Malaysia. Um, and they spent some time trying to, trying to see, well, First of all, how could that happen? Because you wouldn't normally expect that a plane flying at 30,000 feet or whatever. That so you're going to get a cell phone um, connection of any kind. That you, would get a, that you would get a connection. And they flew around in a, I don't know, it was a Cessna or some, some smaller yeah, plane at a low. Test, yeah. They kind of carried out a slightly half-assed test to see if they could get it to work, and they couldn't. But, you know, what, what, no real conclusion could be drawn from that. Um, you could tell a story in which... Um, you know, the, the first officer was fighting back and trying to take back control of the airplane, either from terrorists or from a deranged pilot. Um, but, uh, 
you know, and, and, and you could ask questions like, why didn't anybody else's cell phone try to connect? And we don't, first of all, we don't really know uh, that, the, that the Malaysian police did a very thorough investigation. They might have only tested the cell phone numbers of the flight crew. They might not have done the passengers. They might have. We just don't know because the documentation we don't know because was, it was, was complete and it was like illegally leaked and everything. Um, I, uh, my take home from it is that the only sig- true significance that we can be fully confident in, in taking from this detail of the case is that the plane did actually follow this route. I mean, I, it's, I, it's, it's confirmatory yeah, or, or important supporting the, evidence that did. This is for the yeah. radar that it, it would uh, appear on, if, if we accept what's there, that it would appear to support the turn back across the Malaysian pil- uh, peninsula uh, uh, towards Penang uh, to the west beyond that. Which I don't find surprising, but yeah. some people, there's there's been such a prolifer- proliferation of uh, theories uh, some of people say no, it really did crash in the South China Sea, and or or that it it turned south. You know, it was it was it turned south towards Indonesia, but then it kept going straight. It didn't mm. turn northwest to Penang, and so forth. But so I don't I don't think it has a lot of it. Doesn't tell us much about the case, but it does tell us something about the case. Yeah, I yeah. think. Let's let's move on to I suppose that what I what I would call some of the myths. Uh, and we've already touched on one or two of them, uh, on the realities of, of this, you know. I think we, we've already talked about this whole idea, oh, well, you know, if I can find, or if if I lose my iPhone, you know, there's an app on it, I can find it. And I think we've kind of touched on the reasons why, look, okay, I appreciate that, but that doesn't quite work for this aircraft because there, the, the, the communications equipment wasn't working uh, on it. Right. Um. Uh, we, we we've talked about the the the, the, the broader communication issue on on, on the 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 hack on the S, the SDU, um, I suppose this really starts taking us to really from July uh, 2015. We touched on this. I suppose the first most tangible piece of the aircraft was found. You mentioned it earlier on La Reunion, uh, which is an island off the east coast of. Um, uh, Africa. Uh, just ex- talk to us a little bit about the, the the part and the significance of the part itself. It's called a flapperon. It's called a flapperon, and the and the main significance is that from the middle, from say, uh, boy, it was quite soon after the plane disappeared, and then and and Inmarsat came out with the satellite data. Uh, the Malaysian prime minister held a press conference. He said to, uh, to the family members of the disappeared uh, that your your relatives are dead because they, they flew into the southern Indian Ocean. We know this because of this electronic data. Now, this is a remarkable turn of events to declare 239 people dead because of math, essentially, because we had these signals. We, we, we ran some analysis of them and we were able to determine through math alone that your family is dead. And they immediately, then they began a sea and air search uh, that cost ultimately wound up costing hundreds of millions of dollars uh, based on only numbers. And so when this piece turned up in July of 2015, it was no longer just numbers. 
there was now physical evidence that the plane had crashed in the southern Indian Ocean. And that was a major turning point in the case. And really, in the minds of the public, really settled the issue indisputably. Okay, it's not just Matt. This is an act. And conveniently, I should add, of all the pieces that have turned up, and at this point, I think it's more than 20 that have been confirmed or highly suspected of being from MA370, the only one that has like a, a suite of numbers inside. Some of the others have numbers as well, but I think none, none as, no, as numerous as this one. So this one kind of came almost like with a tag on it that says this, this part comes not just from a 777, but specifically from 9M MRO, the plane that disappeared. Right, yeah. Um, I, th I think at this stage now, I think we, we uh, I don't know the specific number. It's, it's not that many, but I think we've maybe three or four parts which can be with pretty much reasonable confidence be right. not just assigned They've to got 8777, but 9MMRO, which is the registration of the aircraft. Um, right. And as you say, I know. I think they've looked up, up to thirty pieces of debris. I think it is now uh, over the past two years uh, since July 2015, the first uh, piece. Um, and, and and there are now uh, parts. There are a handful of parts. I think we believe that are likely to be from within the aircraft internally. Now, just right. explain the significance of that, because a lot of the parts that we've had are what we call, you know, wing tail control surface parts right. externally. The majority come from the wings or engine or tail. Mm -hmm. uh, and like disproportionately, like almost all. And there's a, there's there's one or two uh, or three that, we have you know, there's a, there's a part of a panels, seat back. Yeah. There's a there's a panel that has this sort of the wallpaper pattern. There's another piece that has the same wallpaper pattern, uh, and so and so this so some people thought okay this is my theory that the that, that the pilot wanted to fly south for some reason but then he wanted to ditch it and he wanted to like maybe he wanted to land it really gently on the water and then have it sink so that nobody would ever find it so he wanted to land it in one piece. The fact that there's internal parts. Oh, and the idea was that okay, if he if he did that sort of miracle in the Hudson, it would mm -hmm. still rip off parts of the wing. Yeah, I mean, and so I, maybe I, that this, has... this this is one of the theories which I I find but it borders on comical uh, at times. Right. Uh, we've anybody who's been is in any way interested in aviation uh, will probably be familiar with that very famous shot now of of. Uh, I, th I think it was a 737, an, e uh, an Ethiopian uh, aircraft, right. which was um, hijacked, although the, the pilot was still flying it. The hijackers were, were in the cockpit with him, and he essentially, they, they, want, you know, so they want to do something crazy, fl fly us to Australia, we can't get to Australia, we don't have the fuel. Uh, essentially, uh, he attempted to land the plane uh, on water um, with some success, because thankfully there were some survivors, uh, and he very cleverly brought the aircraft down and although it flipped and, and disintegrated came apart uh, he, he made sure that the aircraft was close to the coast and I think if you watch that there was a pilot with an aircraft out of fuel uh, purely the skill of the pilot trying to land it and we, then of course we've seen the, the famous pictures of 
Captain Sullenberg landing on the Hudson. Right. But people often say, well, well maybe that's what the pilot did. Yeah. I, I often find that comical because, you know, we are talking about the South Indian Ocean. You know, often I think they, they, so there's areas of it which they call the Roaring Forties. This is a very, you know, this is sea with, with you know, tens of meters of waves. Uh, it's thousands of miles. I think it's about 1,200 miles, isn't it, off the coast of Australia. So to attempt to set a 777 down very subtly as possible into the water to right. keep it intact is an extraordinary feat of itself. And the I, reward for which you get to die slowly instead of quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of it. It 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 brings up the whole. And and, and of course, uh, if you're going if you're going to do that, you know, wouldn't it make more logical sense to have your engines running and have fuel, at least some fuel in the uh, tanks to use the engines to put the aircraft down as subtly as possible rather than let it run well, out. I, 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 listen, I completely agree with what you're saying, uh, but unfortunately there's such a dearth of, of reasonable stories that you could tell based on the data that we have that we've long since thrown aside any um, requirement that the, uh, that the perpetrator of this, whatever happened, had a reasonable motive. And we're, yeah. and we're just... Or at this point, if it's at least physically plausible, that's okay. And let's assume that this, so very early on, we got into the stage of like, okay, so let's assume that the pilot's completely nuts, and he will do anything. He will do literally anything that you can conceivably imagine and assume that that, and we're okay with that, because this is such a weird set of circumstances. So let's imagine that the plane flies south, and then for no reason turns a 90-degree angle to the right, flies for an hour, takes a 90-degree angle to the left, flies for another hour. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. we're not going to... I mean, it would be nice if you could tell a story that had some motive or some plausible psychological underpinning to it. But at this point, uh, you know, it, it becomes very, very difficult to tell a story that even has any... Uh, that fits even half the data in hand. For instance, yes, it's really implausible that somebody would want to ditch a plane in the ocean. On the other hand... If you look at the pattern of debris damage uh, that was, you know, recently released by the Malaysians, it turns out that the, well, for example, the Flaperon, uh, it looks to one of the investigators that I spoke to, like this thing came apart by beings dragged across a surface, like someone ditching a plane. Not, not like a plane, not a piece that came off at high speed as it was plunging towards the ocean, mm -hmm. or a piece that was, you know, smashed on impact. Uh, and even, I wrote this on my blog, the, one of the fragments that turned up was a door to the nose landing gear. And this was not smashed, as you'd expect, if a piece went nose first into this, the ocean. This was the, but it was the, front, the front landing gear. The front landing gear. The door to the, the front landing gear door yeah. was... Because that's just Hold a claim apart. for people that there's, now, there's, there's two sets of doors. There's a, a longer main set of doors which sits towards the front, in front of the gear, if we can. And then there's two smaller sets of doors. So we're talking about one of the front doors. Right. This is a set of doors that does not stay open in flight. It closes. So whether the gear was up or down, this door would have been closed. Closed, yeah. And so you would 
and so, it, yeah, it's just very difficult to imagine a set of circumstances that would give rise to the debris damage that we that we observe. Um, uh, so, what how, what what kind of story can you tell? It becomes very difficult. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, very much so. Um, Jeff, as we move towards a, a conclusion, um, first of all, let's look. Where are we now with, with the search and, and the status? Well, effectively, they're not searching at the moment. So, so just if you could just sum up the current status and situation of the, the search for MH370. Right. So a few months back, the Malaysians and Chinese and Australians got together. These are the nations that are responsible for the search. Uh, they said, look, we've searched the area of the southern Indian Ocean where the math said the plane should have gone. We didn't find it. We don't have any other really good ideas. We're going to suspend the search. We're not going to call it off. If they did call it off, they'd have to release a report explaining what they found so far. They don't want to do that, I think. Um, and uh, they want, I think, have a sort of fig leaf uh, that they're still trying to solve the case. It's essentially a cold case at this point. But they, but they from time to time, release reports, like the Malaysians did uh, most recently, about the debris damage. Um, and there's, I think we all have some hope that, that information will continue to emerge. I think there are still many leads to pursue, personally. Mm -hmm. um, but officially, it's a cold case. And, and probably significantly as well, um, it's been quite some months since any debris was found off this aircraft. We, this is probably the longest period of time, I think, since the initial uh, flap run was found in July uh, 2015 by a, a beach worker. Um, we, we've kind of had a, a consistent trail of, of debris, you know, almost, could almost say one a month uh, turning up. Um, but it's quite significant in the last few months that we've, we've not had any debris. Uh, there's a reason for that. Yeah, we, a reason. We, we think we know the reason. Uh, well, the reason for that, I will look. I, let's back up a little bit. There's two kinds of MH370 debris. There's pieces of debris that turn up and are found by individuals who come upon, who come upon the stuff by accident. Yeah. And this stuff has a certain look to it. It's usually covered in some kind of marine life. It's usually fairly large. Um, and it looks pretty chewed up because you get chewed up if you float around the ocean for a couple of years. Uh, then there's another kind of debris, which is smaller, uh, which ha does not have marine life on it, and which is found by one man, uh, a fellow named Blaine Allen Gibson, who is a retired lawyer from Seattle, Washington, and who has the unique ability amongst all human beings, which is that he can go out and look for pieces of debris and find it. He can even do it while camera crews are following him. He's done twice. He's found pieces while cameras are rolling. The first piece he found, he found after only 20 minutes of looking, um, which is remarkable. This is one guy who has found most of the pieces of MH370 debris. Um, to put it in perspective, um, every year in South Africa, they hold a beach uh, cleanup day in which tens of thousands of people participate. None of them have ever found a piece of debris. Uh, over the course of years. And so here's one guy who in 20 minutes can find pieces. Um, so there, so, so why have we not found any pieces? Well, one of the reasons that Blaine Allen Gibson has now kind of vanished from the scene. Do we know any reasons why uh, Blaine Allen Gibson is not searching anymore? 
Uh, yeah, I think if you asked him, he would say the answer is me. Um, because, uh, <laughs> as you may know, a little context. So, uh, you know, I have put forward the theory that the reason that all this data is so impossible to explain by telling a story about a plane disappearing into the southern Indian Ocean is because it didn't disappear into the southern Indian Ocean. And the reason um, uh, 40 minutes is that it was intentionally rebooted in order to give the, the uh, Inmarsat searchers the impression that the plane had turned south when in fact it turned north. And if you do that, you get the plane that, that goes into, up into Kazakhstan, it winds up near a Russian uh, space launch base. Um, and I, I have spent a fair bit of time looking into the three ethnic Russians who were on board the plane, um, which French journalist Florence de Chagny said looked like air, um, well, she called air pirates. I think that's, uh, that's her French way of saying, um, hijackers. Um, and, uh, and so the, the interesting thing to me is that Blaine Allen Gibson, uh, has, uh, you know, just has been described and profiled in the press as being a retired Seattle lawyer. In fact, he's spent the last three decades uh, as a Russian doing, he's an expert in Russian business. He speaks fluent Russian. He's in a domestic relationship with a Russian. Um, he's basically eyeball deep in Russia. And I just find it an extraordinary coincidence that, um, that someone who finds all of these pieces of debris with seemingly very little effort happens to have deep ties to Russia and, um, you know, and, and a little bit more context, this all happened four and a half months before the Russian ar army shot down the sister ship of MH17, MH, I'm sorry, MH370, a sister plane is MH17. Uh, anyway, I could go on and on, but yeah. to make a long story short, why is Blaine Allen Gibson gone into hiding? He says it's because I accused him of planting yeah. evidence and he feels, and he feels, and he says that he received death threats as a result of this. I don't know why someone would... I mean, people people are pissed at me. They're not pissed at him. Um, but there it is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a and, funny and look, tale. Uh, and for, for the record, this is probably one of the one of the major points we we, we differ on. Uh, I, I I personally don't think I, I have a lot of time for Blaine Allen Gibson. Uh, I think he's done extraordinary work to to progress on. Uh, this case uh, with the debris found. I know you you have suspicions about oh is he planting debris. I don't for a moment believe uh, he's doing that. Um, I, I think he simply has had the financial wherewithal to go to experts and say where do I look? Where's the best place to look? And has been not guided by any instinct or motivation, but just simply he's an adventurer. So we, I know we differ on that point, but I just want to set the record straight that I, I don't think sure. Blaine Allen Gibson is is, is planting uh, uh, debris. I know that's been your suspicion. Um, well, listen, look, I get that. Look, people, and I think this is where it's really, look, people yeah. get uncomfortable. People get uncomfortable talking about people that people like. People like Blaine Allen Gibson. He's a charismatic guy. And people think it's mean of me to 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 raise these allegations right I, I, um, I, you know, I, I i've had a go with you as well about things you've said about sure. captain zahari and, and words that you've chosen or, or you know so okay you know and and one thing i do respect about you jeff and you know me i'll, I'll be critical of you at, at times but i respect that you know you put an awful lot of effort and work into this and you you will broach areas where other people want to maybe tiptoe around 
Uh, and right. You know, I respect that. I don't always respect the, the manner in which you go about it. Uh, sure. But, you know, I still respect, you know, the pluses of what you've done in, in this case. Just overall, Jeff, we, we... Sorry, do you want to say something? I kind of do. I mean, yeah. and, and I don't want to derail okay. your, your, your no, train of ahead, thought, but the, 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 the major... A lot of people say, well, why can't we solve the mystery of MH370? And, to, and my perspective is that solving the mystery of MH370 is only half the battle. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, in, in order to get anywhere with this, what we're really trying to do is shift people's minds. We're trying to say, look, you have this framework with which you're understanding this problem. And I don't want to just change your opinion, but I want you to... Dis dismantle that framework and build another framework. I want you to look at this with, like, with completely different... And listen, I, as you know, I've been hosting this a discussion on my website for many years now. JeffWise.net, yeah. Yeah, JeffWise.net, yeah. And I don't think anybody that's been participating in this discussion for the last two or three years has changed their mind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, some people have kind of shifted their position, but like, I don't think anybody, including me, I mean, I stand accused as well, it's been very hard to get people to say, Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to say, because once you say, okay, look, I don't believe the radar data. I do believe the Inmarsat data. I do believe BTO. I don't believe BFO. You know, everyone has their kind of set of, of relative strict rules. Degree to start out with, yeah. yeah, kind of start with a certain rule. I don't trust Malaysians. I do trust Australians. All these kinds of things. And really, the, but, but ultimately, the heart of the issue is a question of what am I willing to contemplate? And for me, I have spent the last essentially three years trying rather ineffectively, it must be said, to get people to at least grapple with the possibility that this Inmarsat data was tampered with. And, uh, and, and a lot of people right out the bat said, you know what, deal breaker, I am not willing. And I mentioned it right at the top of this discussion that, mm -hmm. that Inmarsat themselves felt like, the 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 con the mathematics behind this uh, analysis is so complex that nobody is nobody could be smarter more enough smarter enough more than us mm. to have figured this out before us. Therefore, it must be pristine. And I what I've been trying to say is, look, I've been saying for three years that you weren't going to find it in the Southern Indian Ocean. You spent 150 million dollars looking for it. You didn't find it. Are you now going to listen to me? At what point are you, at your, your, your efforts keep failing? I'm telling you that you're banging your head against the wall. Will you, will you at least look at it? And so I'm saying, so if you say, okay, look, I like Blaine. He's a nice guy. I say, you know what? People can be nice. I did a documentary that I think everyone should, can look at if they, if they want to. It's, it, was, it aired here in the United States on Showtime. It's called Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. Mm -hmm. It's about a very personable, very nice guy that's very charming named John McAfee. He's famous. He's rich. He founded antivirus software. It turns out he's a murderer. He's a drug addict, a rapist, and a murderer. He's not a good person. He's a nice person, but people who seem very nice and personal aren't necessarily good, and they can do things that are bad. And so I know that people like Blaine. They, they find it um, personally. And I, I, look, I had a very, as I did with you, I had a very pleasant um, history of, of discourse with Blaine. Yep, we yep. talked about it at matters and stuff. And, and, and uh, I find him very personable, too. But I say if you're going to really grapple with this mystery, 
it's no use to just say I stick to my idea that this that this plane must have flown to the Cocos Islands for for because I have a theory about it. You're going to really have to say break it down. What could you be wrong about? What have you refused to look at that maybe that you should look at? And if and 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 the fact that this plane was not found in the Southern Indian Ocean where the math said it should have gone is incredibly significant. And the fact that people have really not been willing to grapple with that fact to shout from the rooftops. Now, a lot of aviation journalists, especially in Australia, think that it's just ridiculously bonkers to to doubt the veracity of the ATSB's analysis that led them to look in the Southern Ocean. They think it's irresponsible. Well, I say you spent $150 million and you didn't find the plane. Are you not going to, you know, should that not be looked at? I mean, come on, you spent all this money. If I had had one fraction of that money, boy, I'd be extremely happy, as I'm sure you would be too. Um, I'm saying it's like, this is time to say we failed. Let's, you know, that, that, Expression that happened in the 2008 financial never waste a good crisis. We have a crisis here. It's the, the, the mainstream story has fallen apart. Let's use it. Let's ask ourselves, why did it fall apart? Where did, they, where did we go wrong? And I, instead of really grappling with this in an enthusiastic way, what I'm just hearing is people saying, either shrugging their, their, their shoulders and saying, we just don't know, we'll never know, who knows, we tried our best, we got unlucky. This is very disappointing to me. I'm sorry, I've just gone off on a rant. No, you're okay. But I feel very frustrated. I said, listen, you think I'm a jerk for, okay, fine, I'm a jerk, right? I, I, I said nasty things about a person that is well-liked. But I'm going to say, look, you have to look beyond your prejudices and your emotions and your feelings that this guy is a good guy. Accept that he's a good guy. Let's, let's, let's assume he's innocent. But let's just, as a hypothetical, investigate some of these points that I'm raising. And, yet, and say, because... Otherwise, I don't. A lot of people say, "Oh, I'm thinking of the families. We have to keep the search going on." I say, "No. I think it's crazy to keep searching, having failed, having failed, and 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 failed again, and failed again. To keep trying without without stepping back and reassessing is crazy, and just just uh, depressing to me." There is it. It was a. Albert Einstein, who had that quote about, you know, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, then, you know, you're pretty foolish. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, you know, I, that, that's, what, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, it's, it's, it, whatever you thought it was, it wasn't. We don't think that anymore. And I, I still have people on my website saying things like, oh, I, I'm proposing a new route into the southern Indian Ocean. All the routes into the southern Indian Ocean have been checked. Maybe you can come up with an idea of like, he did this, he did that. The other thing, he wound up just outside the search area. It's, you know, look, anything is possible, mm -hmm. but the chances are so vanishingly remote at this point that it's just, it's, it's no longer a fruitful line of inquiry, I think. I suppose we have to finish on the obvious question. Jeff Wise, where do you think MH370 is? Um, I think it's due to you're you're okay to say I haven't a clue. Oh, uh, I have a clue. I have. I think it's. I think it's a solved case. Frankly, I mean, I. I to you're, me, the, you're the, sticking by Kazakhstan. The I, okay. Listen, when I came out with this idea, mm -hmm. the, the notion that the Russians were smart enough and devious enough and frankly evil enough to have pulled this off was an extremely bonkers idea. Everyone said I was a lunatic for saying it. Um, 
Then four and a half months later, this MH17 happened. How crazy am I? How crazy am I now? I, I did an article in your magazine. How crazy am I? Well, then four and a half months later, MH17 happened, and all of a sudden, I'm like, wow. Okay, now everyone's going to say, oh, I guess Russians can do this kind of thing after all. Well, people people were like, no. There was this whole, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a whole other hour conversation. Then we get, well, frankly, fast forward to November 2016. Donald Trump gets elected president of the United States. As we're seeing every day, another layer gets peeled off that end. And I, 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 I somehow knew Donald Trump was going to come into this because you could have you could you could have uh, conversations about vegetables. You could have conversation about the green grass, and somewhere Donald Trump comes into every conversation. Hell. Well, absolutely, and I mean, and and, and I, I know you disagree with my overall analysis of this piece, but to me. Mm-hmm. My failure um, to get anyone to take seriously the idea that Russians took MH370, um, I feel like prevented any anything. I mean, pre- uh, prevented anything being done to prevent MH17. Prevented anything to be done about Brexit prevented um, the, the, the ultimate tragedy of my generation in the United States is that this completely deranged lunatic became, you know, took the reins of, of presidency of the United States. And, and, the, and we are essentially in a kind of quiet civil war right now. Um, but, the, but, but, but to get back to the point, yeah. which is that it is now evident that the Russians have been running circles around us, that, that we are completely at their mercy, that they have been pulling off incredibly sophisticated and effective, um, you know, what, what has been labeled hybrid warfare. And the damage, uh, at least we've sort of finally started to wake up to the, to the, to the depth and the range and the sophistication of their capabilities, such that Macron was able to apparently deflect some of the efforts of, the, of, of Russian intelligence agencies. But the idea that the, that the Russians couldn't have done this, that they wouldn't have the capability or they wouldn't have the, 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 um, the, the evilness uh, or the motivation to do it, I think that's all off the table. So wh- whether you believe my, my theory or not, I think you have to agree that it's a lot, many orders of magnitude less crazy than it was back in 2014. I'd certainly give you that much, yes. It's certainly less <laughs> crazy. Cause what do you, cra- can I turn cra- it around? Crazy is as crazy has. Uh, and- uh, I mean, because I think the, 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 the problem that people still have, the, people, the problem that people voice about my theory is that it just, it, it seems too much. It seems there's no, there's yeah. no technical reason. I mean, you, 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 or you can say, well, well, the debris had to have been planted. And I said, yes, the debris had to have been planted. Uh, and the signal had to have been spoofed. And now, whether you think that those are beyond the capabilities of the Russians uh, is perhaps a moment, uh, just a matter of judgment. But any other story, theory that you can give me, I can give you technical reasons why it's not possible. Mm-hmm. And so there is no. Uh, so people say my theory is crazy. I say there is no other theory than my theory at this point, except for X, which I think someone, uh, some some of the people I, I communicate with have said we just it's just it's a shrug. We don't know. Yeah. And I don't find that very satisfying. I think we do have tons of data. 
No, so tell uh, me a story that you think. Tell me a story that you think fits the data. I, I, I pretty much believe that it is in the South Indian Ocean. I don't believe, uh, as I said, that Blaine has been uh, planting debris. I was suspicious for a long time about the radar, the military uh, reported radar data. Um, I'm more inclined to believe it, it could be true. At least one of one of two points is true. Uh, I reached that conclusion when I'd read the uh, Malaysia police report. Um, it does seem to me that the first officer's cell phone was picked up, or some it pinged briefly for a second or two. Um, it, it, as you you would probably argue that well that has to be made up. Uh, then if you if you don't accept the the radar data, then maybe they made up. I, I, I'm sorry, I, made up what? That this has all been invented. That essentially that the Malaysian police report and everything in it was this sort of contrived story to. Oh, I don't, I don't. I don't, no, no, I don't no, think, no, no, no. I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. I'm saying some, some would just, oh, you know, okay. say that this whole, you know, that that everything's suspicious and everything must be contrived. Right. I, I, you know, from the early days, I've always believed that there's, there's more incompetence with the whole way that this has been, particularly from the Malaysians, that that this has been dealt with, than there is nefarious people, nefarious people, you know, at work uh, to to contrive this grand, you know, conspiracy of, of stealing an aircraft, um, you know. So I, I do believe the aircraft is in the the, the southern Indian Ocean. Um, I've looked at enough of the the drift analysis to suggest that broadly where the debris is turning up is where it should turn up. Um, I, I just but it's it, not consistent with the, well, I mean, I, I would, to, to that I would simply say that any, any scenario that you would propose would not fit with data in hand in m multiple respects. And so, you can, and so it's one thing to say that you think that it, it, it broadly fell onto this category of possibilities, but I would say that there, that there, that that is a null set. That there is, if you actually try to to make a detailed picture of a, of a, of a route with an endgame scenario, it's not going to fit. And I think you really you do, you do need to. This is part you know apologies for 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 putting it this way, mm -hmm. but. This case is cannot be grappled with, and certainly not can, cannot be solved without a descent into granularity. You have to go all the way down to the nuts and bolts in order to grapple with it. And, and so, to say that you think it went to the Southern Indian Ocean has no value. I'm sorry, frankly, I mean it's you, it's not enough to say that one has a belief about the ultimate disposition of the case. One has to grapple with specific scenarios, or at least a class of scenarios that can be dealt with together. Um, un unfortunately, I feel that much of the discussion, both amongst mm -hmm. people like you and me who, who, who have kind of um, gone deep down the rabbit hole on it, and aviation journalists who cover this professionally, and the public who's, who's interested or not interested in varying degrees, there's been a failure to really be willing to go all the way down deep, all the way to the bedrock, and grapple with these things and say, prove or disprove, prove or disprove. And you, and you might say, it's completely valid to say, listen, the pieces all seem to have been come apart by uh, 
failure under tension rather than compression. Yeah. Um, and 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 it, it's 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 difficult to reconcile that with a certain scenario, but. Who knows exactly how these pieces came apart? We can't, you know, the investigators themselves say we cannot paint a picture of a scenario based no, on these pieces. We just but but, but yes. so many aspects of this, you can say, all right, this is a this is a is under a cloud. We don't understand how to explain this. Unfortunately, every single aspect of this case, you reach the same conclusion. It doesn't fit. And I could say like the way the barnacle distribution on the flapron, which I've raised questions about. How do you explain the fact that a part which floats half out of the water has barnacles all over the whole thing? And people say, I don't know. It's just a weird thing. And I accept that. Fine. For that one piece, you know, life is full of inexplicable things. Mm -hmm. But when every single aspect of the case, we have to shrug our shoulders and say it's inexplicable. We can't say why. Ultimately, I think that raises a problem that has to be addressed. And so and so. I feel it's it maybe it comes across as unfair for me to invoke this, um, you know, this privilege of saying, look, I've gone deep on this and it doesn't make any sense. But the fact is, the matter I really this is I don't think I've ever really articulated this to anyone. Mick, so I'm yeah, no, no, so no this okay. is coming to you yeah. hot and fresh. I feel like I have done the work. I have gone deep all the way. I have grappled with the details, and I'm telling you that every single thing that people are are touting, it's not, it doesn't hold water. Nothing that people are touting holds water. And unfortunately, I'm going up against people who are writing books. And like as I said, it really frustrates me that people are writing books without knowing what the SDU even is, let, a, let alone trying to weigh the, the various options for how it could have turned off and on. What are the circuit breakers and where are they located, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's not all opinions are not equally valid. And so I stand alone touting a, a hypothesis that practically nobody else has signed on with. So I'm very it's a very lonely position in a sense. And yet the, the yet the multitudes against whom I stand mostly comprise of people who haven't grappled with the with the data and its details and who's, so who's frankly whose opinions don't really count. And that and that sounds kind of like an asshole thing to say probably, but that's how I feel. Okay. <laughs> I feel you're you're glad I got that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I've been I've been at this a long time. I've tried to like take every I've tried to go down every different route around the maze, and um and and I, I look nobody's really listening to me anyway. I, I get that, but um I still I still feel it's important. I I literally do think that if if people could have listened to what I was saying about MH370 and MH17, we would have been forearmed for really what turned out to be a horrible, horrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. Horrible tragedy, which is the disintegration of the United States political order and and all the attendant, I mean, from pulling out of the Paris Accords to the disruption of the North Atlantic Alliance, uh, you know, fracturing of NATO, I, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a it's a huge huge tragedy, and these events should have served as a kind of tripwire to trigger us to what really serious was going on, and 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 an adversary with an incredibly sophisticated potential, um, and utter ruthlessness, and so um, that's where I'm coming from. It's a pretty crazy place. I'm the only one who's, who's saying it, but I do feel that like I don't give a, I don't care that people think I'm an, I'm, I'm a jerk or that I'm a lunatic because frankly I, my disappointment is that I have failed to alert people to what should have been a tripwire and now we're living in 
a pile of expletives deleted. Jeff Wise, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, as it always is. Um, thank you for joining us on Radio Espoil. You've been very welcome, hey. and it's been great. My and, pleasure. Uh, Listen, man, I'm sorry. I, just, I sorry I derailed your, you know, your no, train of no, thought. No. No, you're 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 fine. We are where we are, and you know, I I wanted to I wanted you to explore more, you know, of of that area of why you are so passionate about this, and that you know you see it in the context of a much larger, you know, global picture. That that this isn't just oh, Jeff Boyce has gone on about that plane again, or he's gone on about them Russians again. You know that that there there is a motivation on a larger you know, picture that you see. And I hadn't always felt that you got that out uh, clearly. I appreciate that. You're right. I hadn't. And I'm glad that we had this conversation because it wasn't until I was talking to you that I really, yeah, I was able to like figure it out like that. But I, yeah, yeah, thank you. You've okay. been my therapist. Jeff, uh, we'll have to sign off. Um, thank you. Okay. And uh, I'm sure the pair of us will uh, catch up uh, soon as well. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for joining pleasure. us, Jeff. Take care. Thank you, Mick. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview. Uh, Certainly some very interesting topics and conversation points uh, there. Uh, And I've no doubt we'll come back to some of those uh, during our later programs. Uh, I'll have a number of links involved um, in the broadcast uh, when I publish it. Uh, So have a look down below wherever you see this uh, broadcast. Um, And there you go. Uh, We've completed the uh, first episode. Let me know what you think. Um, And here we go. You've been listening to Radio... Espoil. You have been listening to Radio Espoil, a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media and presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney. Please feel free to leave a comment and visit our links provided in this podcast production. Thank you for your support. We'll talk to you again soon.
since this uh, broadcast was recorded, uh, I'd just like to point out that we mentioned uh, during the interview with Jeff that um, we talked about the Inmarsat data uh, and, and since the broadcast, uh, about a week later, um, that Inmarsat data and if you like the full set, the raw set uh, between Inmarsat and their partner uh, CITA, SITA, uh, has now been made public. Uh, that is the full raw data. Um, if you want to check out uh, Radiant Physics, Victor Anato's uh, site, uh, you can also um, get access to that data, uh, the full spreadsheets. Um, and also, I just want to add that I should have added during the program, if you want to uh, join a group and catch up with me on the latest things about um, MH370, I do regularly comment and post as an administrator on what happens next uh, MH370 and MH317 on Facebook. Okay, take care. We'll talk again soon.